All right. Y'all stand and we'll worship the Lord this morning. We'll uh, recite our call to worship together. It comes from Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. Y'all stay here with me. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Let lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are God of my salvation. For you, for you I wait all the day long. We've waited for this day. We're gathered in your name, calling out to you. We've waited to fire, awakening desire will burn our hearts with truth. You're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're singing. Open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the floodgates, a mighty river flowing from your heart, filling every part of our praise. Your presence in this place. Your glory on our face, we're looking to the sky. Descending like a cloud, you're standing with us now, Lord, unveil our eyes. You're the reason, you're the reason we're here, you're the reason we're here, Lord. You're the reason we're singing. Open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the floodgates, a mighty river flowing from your heart, filling every part of our brain. You're the reason we're here this morning, Lord. Open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the floodgates, a mighty river Flowing from your heart, filling every part of our praise. Can we just bring it all to Him this morning, y'all? Bring everything you have and lay it at His feet. And we just ask the Lord to show us His face this morning, show us His blessing, show us His glory. Show us. Show us your glory, show us, show us your power, show us, show us your glory, Lord. Oh, oh, show us, show us your glory. Open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the floodgates, a mighty river flowing from your heart, filling every part of our praise. 
the heavens. We want to see you open up the floodgates. A mighty river flowing from your heart, filling every part of our Just so- 
to make you guys do some jumping jacks or something this morning. You're a little asleep. A little asleep. Let's wake up this morning. Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations. Y'all sing along with me, Savior. Savior, He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Take me as you find me, all my fears and failures. Fill my life again. Give my life to follow everything I believe in. Now I surrender. Jesus conquered the grave. 
distracted today. God, I feel like I've been pulled a hundred different directions this morning, like just been running around in circles. God, I don't think I'm alone. Lord, we know that it's the enemy's goal to get our eyes fixed on anything but you. Lord, that he wants us looking to the right or to the left instead of Instead of just at you. But Lord, we come this morning, we come this morning to make a public declaration that we need you. That's why we're here. To say to you and, and, and anybody else who will listen, I am in need of a Savior. Lord, we come here to worship you. We come here to praise you. We come here to glorify and magnify you because you're worthy of our praise. Lord, I, I, this morning I silenced the mouth of the enemy, God, as he whispers in our ears about all the little things that didn't go quite right or are left undone. We shut his mouth in the name of Jesus. God, we tear down every distraction and every every little thing that the enemy might throw up against us that would, would, would turn our gaze this morning. God, we, we pray this morning as the enemy comes against us like a flood, Lord, would your word be true and your promise be kept that you would raise up a standard against him? God, we've got to push through this morning. We've got to push through this morning all the way to the throne room. All the way to your feet, Jesus. We've got to go all the way to your feet this morning, Jesus. Or we can't be satisfied with less today. You are mighty to save. You are mighty to save. You are mighty to save. Lord, open up the heavens. Open up the heavens. We want to see you. Open up the floodgates. A mighty river flowing. Flowing through this place this morning, God. We want more of you, Jesus. We want it to come over us and just watch over us. Not like a, not like a, a dead, still pond, but like a flowing river. Just more and more and more and more and more. Watch over us, Jesus. Open up heaven this morning. Worthy of every song yes. we could ever yes. sing. Yes, you're worthy, Jesus. Worthy yes. of all the praise we could ever yes, bring. Jesus. 
worthy of every yes. breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. Jesus. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Thank you, Jesus. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. your favor rest upon our children, Lord. We pray for our kids as they go back to school. We pray for this world, Lord. And we pledge to build our lives on you, Jesus, on your glory. And I will build my life upon your love. will put my trust in you alone, and I will not be shaken, and I will build my 
Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come on, church. Lift up a cry of praise this morning. Raise your voices. Pray a prayer of praise to the Lord this morning. Just talk to Him. Don't worry about anybody else. Just pray a prayer of praise to the Lord this morning. Lift your voices. Come on, God. We praise You this morning, Lord. We worship You this morning, God. We lift You up, mighty God. You are worthy of our great praise, Jesus. We honor You, Lord. We honor You, Lord. You're worthy, Jesus.
you to take our faces in your hand and turn our faces to look at you and see you for who you are, all your goodness, all your wonder, all your mercy. We look in the mirror and we're disappointed, but you're not. You just love us. You want to restore us to what you made us to be, God. Thank you, Lord. Do it. Restore us, God. Carve out all the brokenness and hurt and sin and restore us to what you made us to be. God, we're not worthy to be apostles or prophets or teachers or evangelists or shepherds, God, but you called us, so you do it, God. You make us what you made us to be. We messed it up, God. You can make it right by the blood of your son, Jesus. Thank you. Holy Spirit, refine us now. Anoint us for your oil over us. Watch over us anew. God, we confess our sin. Forgive us. We praise you for the calling. Help us to walk in it. We love you, Lord. We praise you. You are so worthy. You're so good. I guess our kids can be released to Children's Church. How exciting is that? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only parent, but I'm really glad that my four-year-old is being released from the service this morning. He is. He's invited to the party. Sammy, take Nick with you. What a beautiful group of kids we have. Man, we are blessed. We are so blessed. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I happen to know that they're having ice cream sandwiches this morning, so um, I think we missed out. (laughs) I'm just saying. Uh, You guys guys may want to go out there with Miss Lee. Uh, I have no ice cream sandwiches for you this morning. I apologize. (laughs) Boo. I'm getting booed. That's the first. Um, 
I'm getting booed now. Uh, I don't blame you. <laughs> no ice cream sandwiches, that's bad. So we've been talking together about these, these callings of Christ, and we're going to continue that, that pattern this morning. And we wanna, we're going to continue by talking about the, uh, the position of the teacher. And <clears throat> I don't want to do a whole lot of review, so uh, I'm just going to jump right in this morning, and we're going to talk about this concept of the teacher. The teacher, um, I don't know if, if you guys may have noticed, but each, each one of these things, as I talk about them, you can see reflections of these callings in the person of Jesus. And I, I told you guys in our, in our intro that there's no pastor in the world that can fulfill all of the things that are being asked of them. And, and there's, there's not one man who can be all five of these things except Jesus. He was the only one. <laughs> he was the only one who could do all these things well. And because he could do all these things well, he called us to do these things. Because his call is to be like him. The call of Jesus is come and do what I do. That was the call to his disciples. That was his, his call to the early church. That is his call to us. Go and be like me. That is, that is the call of Jesus. When we think about Jesus, there are a lot of things the world believes about Jesus. Even, even the secular world believes some things about Jesus. There are, at this point in, in time, there are very few people who would argue with you that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure. It is almost universally agreed upon. There was a guy from Nazareth. His name was Jesus. He lived in first century Judea. He was a Jew. He was very important, very influential. He almost certainly was crucified as a, a false leader of Israel by the Romans. Okay, there is, there is maybe some tiny fringe group of lunatics who want to ignore all of secular history and say that didn't happen. Okay, but that, that group of people is really, really small. Okay, everybody, everybody across the historical, academic, scholarly world who has any sense can look at the historical record and say this guy was around. Now, just because he was around doesn't mean he is who we say he is. Right? To agree that Jesus existed is not to say we agree he's God. Right, So the historical, scholarly, academic world can say, even, even the atheist can say, I believe Jesus was a person who existed and not believe he's God. Right? Of course, we make different claims about Jesus as the church. We believe that he was not only man, but he was God. It's a very small group of people who, who think Jesus didn't live. And if you think Jesus did live, then you have to have some explanations for Jesus and for the world-changing movement that was spawned as a result of him. One of the most common descriptions of Jesus is that he was a good teacher. That he was an important teacher in first century Israel. He taught a, a, a particular ethic, a particular social ethic. Lots of people even consider Jesus to be a philosopher. That he looked at life and, and taught people how they ought to be living, particularly that he was an ethicist, that he was a moral, a moral philosopher, he was a societal philosopher. He tried to teach us how to live better together. And they put him in those categories. And that's secular historians. 
They see Jesus as a good teacher. And so when we think about Jesus, it's not hard for us to think about Jesus as a teacher. We have lots of red letters in the Bible. Most of them are teaching. We get a few private conversations, right? Between him and his friends. We get some prayers. But for the most part, when Jesus is talking in Scripture, he's teaching us something. It's easy for us to see Jesus as a teacher. The problem comes in this, that Jesus was not a very good teacher in the human sense. This is an argument C.S. Lewis makes in Mere Christianity. Has anybody ever read that book? Mere Christianity? It's super fun. Um, He makes this argument and he says, if Jesus is a good teacher, then I've never seen a good teacher. Now, C.S. Lewis was a professor at Oxford University, okay? He He was a brilliant teacher. Worked with lots of famous teachers. And he said, if Jesus is the example of what it is to be a good teacher, according to the world, then I have never seen a good teacher. Because Jesus' answer to everybody's questions was, I am. Philip, show us the way. I am the way. The crowd, tells, show us the truth. I am the truth. He said, if this was a good teacher, you would say, excuse me, ma'am. What's 262 divided by 4? I am 262 divided by 4. That doesn't work. That's not good teaching. And so for the world to say Jesus is a good teacher, but then ignore his teaching, Lewis says it's the greatest catastrophe in human history. And it's, it's one of the... One of the greatest hypocritical statements of the world today is to say Jesus is a good teacher, but we don't like what he taught. Oh, he was a great teacher, but what he taught wasn't true. He was a good teacher, but we don't really need to do what he said. Do do you see the rub? You can't have it both ways. Good teachers should be listened to, right? They should be heard. And Jesus was a good teacher. The good teacher, I want to put to you this morning, this idea of the good teacher as a light giver. I was listening to another pastor preach um, on the subject of Jesus as teacher, and this is is what he pulled out, this idea of the teacher as a light giver, someone who who shines light into a situation. this concept of Jesus as a light giver is one that comes from Jesus' teaching. He tells his disciples very early on, we see this in Mark chapter 4, he's, he's, as soon as he comes out of the, of the water being baptized, the Holy Spirit drives him into temptation into the, or into the desert. He spends 40 days fasting. He's tempted by the devil. And all four Gospels record the same thing. When Jesus comes back from this, this time of of trial and testing and fasting and preparation in the wilderness, the first thing he does is he starts traveling around and teaching. And they all say the same thing. Jesus began traveling to all the synagogues and all over Galilee teaching. This is what he did first. This is what he did first. And very early in his ministry, the disciples have just been called. They're they're, they're new. Jesus, the first time we see him speak to anybody in the Gospel of Mark other than to read a passage at the synagogue, his, own, his first original teaching 
He gives the parable of the sower. We know the parable of the sower, right? He throws out seed and some of it grows and some of it's eaten by birds and some lands on the rocky path and some lands on our... You, you guys know the story, right? And it says he tells them many other parables that day. When he goes behind closed doors, his disciples say, uh, what were you talking about out there, Jesus? And he's like, really? You guys couldn't even get that? That one was pretty easy. And he tells them that when he talks to the people... He's always going to use parables. And they're asking him why he's only going to use parables when he talks to the masses. And he quotes this passage from Isaiah chapter 6. It's the call of Isaiah. We remember this story, right? We talked about it a couple weeks ago when we talked about the prophet. He sees, he sees God in the throne room of heaven. And God cleanses him and prepares him for ministry. And then God speaks and says, Who can I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, Me! Me! Send me! And then God delivers this word to him, and he says, I want you to go out and I want you to preach to these people and tell them that they will be seeing, but never perceiving. That they'll be hearing, but never understanding. That their hearts will be calloused. And they'll never really understand what I'm doing. Because if they did, then they would repent. And they turn around. But they're not going to do that. And ultimately they're going to end up destroyed because of their unrepentance. And then he says this. This is, he, this is in verse 13 of chapter 6. He says, but there is a time coming when a root will grow or a shoot will grow from the stump. Now that language is used several times in the Old Testament. Oftentimes it says that, that a, a root will come from the stump of Jesse, meaning one that comes from David's family. That little word, that little word that for shoot or, or outgrowth from a stump is the word netzer. You know, Jesus was called the netzeret, the Nazarene. That's why Matthew says it was, it was written that he'd be called the netzeret. He would be called the shoot that came from the stump. Matthew says that's why it's important that he went to live in Nazareth, the root, Nazareth. And so here, here is Jesus trying to explain why he's telling parables to the people. And he tells his disciples... The reason I'm doing this is because, quote, they've been seeing but never perceiving. They've been hearing but never understanding. Their hearts have been calloused. But see, now the root has sprung from the stump. There's new growth from what had been cut down. The one God talks about right there in this prophecy in Isaiah 6 is here now. So now it's time for them not just to see but to perceive. Not just to hear but to understand. Because the time has come. Why am I talking in parables? Because I don't just want them to hear the word anymore. I want them to understand it. He goes on to tell the disciples, would anybody light a lamp and put it under a bowl? Of course not. You would light a lamp and you would put it on the stand so that it would give light to the whole house. 
Jesus says, the reason I'm teaching this way is because the people need light. And then he says, what's, what's covered will be, disclo- will be disclosed. That which is hidden will be shown. This is all there for you in Mark chapter 4. What's hidden will be seen because I'm going to shed light on this truth that the people have been missing since the time of Isaiah. The teacher is a light giver. They shine light on the truth. The job of the teacher is to shine light on the truth. Now this is really important. There are those among us as Christians gifted and called for the ministry of teaching. They are givers of light. They shine light on the truth. What is the truth? Well, Jesus said it this way. Your word is truth. Then they'll know the truth and the truth will set them free. Your word is truth. That's what Jesus said. Teachers among us shine light on this truth. The teachers among us have this overwhelming, insatiable, passionate obsession with this book. Because their whole purpose for being here is to make sure everybody around them understands this thing. And I think it starts with them. They want to understand it first. I think the real drive and passion of the teacher is that they want to know the truth. They want to know the truth. And and their calling in the church is to shed light on that truth. To light up those hidden things. To teach in a new way because we've been seeing but not really perceiving. And maybe we heard this word but we didn't really understand it. And the teacher's job is to make this thing make sense. The teacher is not interested or does not even seek to really bring you information. They're not interested in information giving. What they're interested in is understanding. They don't seek to bring info. Now, maybe the teacher will give you some information, but only if it helps you understand. They're not here to fill your head with knowledge. They're not here to give you a list of facts, a historical context, some interesting little tidbit of the way the temple functioned in the first century. All that stuff is great and wonderful if it helps you understand the text. And the drive, the passion of the teacher is not to bring information, but to bring understanding. And so this is part of their calling This is part of their calling as the light giver, is to bring understanding. Think about about the largest teaching we have of Jesus. The biggest sermon he ever preaches is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, right? The Sermon on the Mount. He starts that sermon with what we call the Beatitudes, and he tells people, if you live your life this way, you're going to be blessed. And then he goes into this little discourse, and he says... He says, you guys may think that the Son of Man has come to do away with the law. That's not why I'm here. He says, in fact, I'm here 
to fulfill it. That's, that's the way we translate that word. That word, we translate fulfill it. it. It means literally to bring it to its completion. I'm here to fill it all the way up. I'm here to do it the way it's never been done. I'm here because there are some gaps. This thing's not full yet. And I'm here to make sure that it is brought to its absolute fullness, this thing you call the law. And then he starts this, this sermon. And it's line after line, paragraph after paragraph, where Jesus starts this way. You have heard it said in the days of old. You've heard it said through the prophets. You heard it was said in the law. But. Now he's not coming to abolish the law, right? He's coming to bring the law into fullness. So then he starts with the law. You heard it said, don't murder. But I'm here to tell you, there's more. That thing can be filled out. If you have hate in your heart for somebody else, you've murdered them already. You see, it's not abolishing the law. The law's still there. You can't murder people. But Jesus says there's more to this picture to be understood. It's not good enough just to give you information and say what's written on the page is thou shalt not murder. That's not enough for the teacher. The teacher doesn't just want to give you information. They want to give you understanding. And so Jesus expounds law after law after law. You heard it said eye for an eye, but I'm telling you if somebody hits you in the face, just stand your ground and let them hit the other side. There's more to this thing that you need to understand. And he gives light where there is no light. He shines light where there is no light. The teacher among us shares this duty. This duty of constantly shedding light on the Scripture. Constantly bringing new truth to us so that we can see it in its completeness. Because a lot of times, church... We, we are hearing, but we are not understanding. It's one of the most common things I hear as a pastor. I ask people, have you been in the Word? Yeah, but I don't get it. I try to read every day, but I just I don't understand what I'm reading. And so it's just really hard. It just feels like this mindless task that I'm just doing out of duty because I don't really get anything from it because I can't understand this book. That is not enough. That's not enough for God. He's not happy with you to be stuck in that place. And the reason we know He's not happy there is because He called some to be teachers. Because He wants you to understand His Word. There's more there. There's a fullness that He wants you to get all of it. And if it means He talks about farming instead of of the law, okay, as long as you understand it, Instead of speaking in in blatant prophecy like Isaiah 53, when it says that the Son of Man or the the Son of God is this this suffering servant is going to be crushed and beaten and hung on a cross and and crucified and that the sinful men are going to lead him away. And instead of just saying it outright like that, Jesus tells a parable of a guy who plants a vineyard. And he sends servants and they work the vineyard for him. And when it's time to harvest, they 
They come to collect. He sends his servants from his house out to the vineyard to collect, but the, the vineyard keepers beat up his servant, send him back empty-handed. So he sends another, and they beat him up, and another, and they kill him. And he says, well, surely they won't kill my son. I'll send my son. Surely they'll have respect for my son. But he sends the son, and they kill him too. You see, there was a truth that had already been spoken, but Jesus wants the people to understand it. And so, the teacher has this same calling to shed light on this truth because just knowing the passage in Isaiah doesn't necessarily mean they got it. But when Jesus tells this parable, it says that the Pharisees were furious because they knew he had spoken it against them. Do you think they knew that Isaiah 53 was spoken against them? I don't think so. I don't think so. You see, because the Pharisees referred to the general population as the sinners. If you weren't a Pharisee, you were just one of the sinners. So you think when, when Isaiah is talking about these men who go and, and crush the Son of God, that the Pharisees thought, oh, well, Isaiah must be talking about us. Of course not. They were the high and mighty. It must have been these lowly, worthless sinners who were doing this. But when Jesus spoke this parable, they understood it was about them. You see, the teacher's not interested in just bringing information, but bringing understanding. If the information helps you understand, great, they'll bring it. But information is not enough for the teacher. They want you to understand. This is a hard one. This is a hard reality for some in the church. And I think maybe this is a harder reality, this next point, I think might be a harder reality for clergy than it is for for church people. In the Church of the Nazarene, we have a very elaborate system required to stand here on Sunday morning and deliver the word to you. I started my journey toward ordination when I was 16 years old. It took 20 years before I was finished. It doesn't have to take 20 years, but it took 20 years for me because it is a long and hard process. You have to go to school. You have to be educated. And not just any education. You have to take a a specific list of courses. You can even go and get a degree from a Nazarene college and still have courses on that list you didn't take. You have to take their classes you ha- because they, they want to make sure you know what you need to know before you stand up here. Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying the system's bad. I'm just telling you, it's a big deal. You go to classes. You have years of service you have to put in. You have to be interviewed every single year by the leadership of your district to make sure that, that your head and what you're learning and what's coming out of your mouth is, is appropriate and is true to this book and stands within the standards of, of who we call ourselves as Nazarenes. Year after year after year, you go through this process and you're vetted and you're tested and you fill out applications and you answer a million questions and ultimately they bring you up and they say, okay, we want to ordain you, but first you have to go through one last step and they they bring you in a room with, with 
and, and for me and Leslie, we were on a big district, and we had like 20 people in the room grilling us for 40 minutes. And if you make it through all of that, then the church will affirm you and say, yes, we acknowledge that you are called, you are equipped, you are prepared, and we are saying to the world and for eternity, you are a pastor in our church. That's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful moment when, when the church of Jesus Christ says, yes, we affirm that you are who you say you are called to be. It's incredible, actually. Sometimes, God raises up a teacher. And being a teacher doesn't require any credentials. This call to be a teacher, there are no credentials necessary. Jesus, it doesn't tell us in Ephesians 4 that Jesus calls some to be professional, vocational leaders in ministry. That's not what it says. It says He calls some to be teachers. That He gives to the church this gift of teachers. Some of those teachers will stand in the pulpit. Some will not. Some of those teachers will have a little certificate of ordination on the wall in their offices. Some will not. Christ called nonetheless. You know, I've heard stories about Tory Walker right here in this church who would stand and he would deliver a powerful truth that this room full of people needed to hear. He has no credentials. He has no formal education. He's got no stamps and fancy plaques and general superintendents handing him awards. It's none of that. He was called to teach nonetheless. There are no credentials required for a teacher because the teacher's authority comes as a result of revelation from God. They don't have authority and then they go seek revelation. No, they're given revelation from the Lord and that is their authority. Revelation comes as they're in the book. And this revelation given to them is the very thing that gives them a platform. The revelation is their soapbox. It is their means of of saying, hey, I'm supposed to say this. Because it didn't come from them. Revelation isn't human. Revelation is divine. And when the Lord gives you an insight into the truth, there are no credentials required. This is hard sometimes for people who have gone through a 20-year process to get the right to stand up here and call myself a pastor. You guys have had Dan Bohai at this church, right? You know how much Dan got beat up for a decade because he doesn't have a credential? How does he have the right to speak? Who gave him all of this right to stand up and say these things? God have mercy on us. 
You know, there's not one of the 12 apostles who would be allowed to be a pastor in the church of the Nazarene. Oh, gosh, Dan got kicked and spit on and beaten up and, and just abused and horribly treated for years. Well, honestly, still is happening. There are whole websites devoted to tearing down Dan's ministry. Set up, orchestrated, operated, and maintained by Nazarene pastors. Forgive us, God. But you see, Dan's authority doesn't come from its credentials. His authority comes from revelation. And you see, teachers don't teach. Teachers don't don't teach just because they feel like it. They don't decide one day, you know, I really think I would like to stand and teach. I really think I would love that. So I'm going to sit down with this book and I'm going to study it until I come up with some brilliant words that I can bring to everyone. That's not... Those who are called to teach don't have to do that. They don't study because they're teachers. They teach because they studied. Dan had no desire to travel around America and preach at churches and be gone from home 300 days a year, miss the growing up of his grandkids and the love of his wife and sleep in hotels hundreds of nights in a row. He doesn't teach just because it's fun. He teaches because he got in this book. God told him to read this book. And he got in this book and he started reading it. And the more he read it, the more he consumed it, the more it consumed him. And as he read it, literally hundreds of times, he began to see things that other people hadn't seen. And he began to understand things that maybe other people didn't understand. And that wasn't because he was some brilliant mind with this great education. It's because God deposited this revelation in him about some truth that was in this Word. And because he had studied, he had to teach. There are no credentials required for the teacher. I think maybe the teacher is the most discouraged position in the church. Because there are those among us who feel like, maybe I have a word, but who am I to bring it? I don't know enough. I haven't studied enough. I don't, I'm not educated enough. I haven't been around the church long enough. I'm too new a Christian. I haven't even read the whole book yet. Did the Lord say something to you from the part that you did read? That's enough. That's enough. You know, the, the, apostles, the apostles were ordinary, uneducated men, right? That's, that's how they were described. You can just substitute in there. These are regular, stupid people. That's what they meant when they said it, I promise. Never do we have a single moment of recorded preaching from Peter in three, maybe four years of ministry. But he gets this revelation of the reality of the Holy Spirit. 
And see, Jesus has been teaching them about the Holy Spirit for the last few weeks. And that something's going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit hits him, and all of a sudden, he gets this revelation from Joel chapter 2, and he's like, oh my goodness, this is what God was talking about! I've read it a hundred times, but I never understood it until right now! And he busts out of the upper room, and he starts teaching. He had no credentials. He had done no preparation. He'd just been with Jesus. And he got a revelation of a truth. And all of a sudden, he had this revelation, and so he was able to shine light where there had been darkness. And he's not bringing these people anything new. He doesn't come out with some brilliant theological theory. He comes out and he quotes an Old Testament passage everybody knew. They're in the middle of a Pentecost celebration. You know what passage they read during Pentecost? Joel chapter 2. Call a holy assembly. Gather the people in the temple. Weep, mourn, fast for the day of the Lord is coming. This wasn't new information. It just finally made sense. And when the revelation came, he had to preach. And when the revelation came, he had the authority to preach. Before that, he didn't have the authority. He was just operating out of a calling to follow Jesus. He he wasn't yet operating out of the anointing of revelation. The teacher, the teacher rescues the text. One of, my, one of my dear friends, Keith McGee, he says, he, he describes people's teaching sometimes as doing violence to the text. Sometimes we do violence to the text. I heard a, a Catholic priest one time say that the, the Bible is like a person. If you abuse it enough, you can make it say anything you want. If you torture this thing enough, you can make it say anything. The job of the teacher is to rescue the text from those circumstances. Because sometimes people take the text hostage. And they tie it down. And they torture it. And they twist it. And they abuse it. Constantly. I saw a meme this week from a former student. And it was a picture of Jesus as a cross-dresser with a group of drag queens. And it said, Jesus and went with a, with a group of his gay friends when they get to heaven. And Jesus is saying, wait, they said I said what? I know it's a meme. Posted by an 18-year-old girl. You know, leave that alone. 
but we do violence to the text. We just amputate the parts we don't like. No, that thing's inconvenient for me. I'll just cut it off. Oh, Jesus loved everybody. He did, but he also rebuked sin a lot and harshly. The teacher, the teacher seeks to rescue the text. Think about the story in, in John where the woman is caught in adultery. The text said that if you commit adultery, you are sentenced to death. That was the law, right? That was the law. These women, or these, these group of men bring this woman, they drag her to Jesus, and it always fascinates me. They say she was caught in the act of adultery. How did they manage that? <laughs> Think about the ramifications of what that sentence means. They caught her in the act of committing adultery. They drag her to Jesus and, and, and they say, oh, the law says she needs to be stoned. What do you think we should do with her? And Jesus rescues the text. And he reminds them that the law says there are a whole lot of sins with the penalty of death. And he says, if there's anybody here who's not guilty of a sin worthy of death, go ahead, start throwing stones. Right? He takes the truth of that text back from these men who are just using it for their own personal devices. They're, they're, they don't care about this woman, obviously. They just as soon kill her as look at her. But the main reason they drug her out here is that they're trying to manipulate Jesus. And they've taken this text and they've made it their slave. It's going to do what we want it to do now. It's going to serve our purposes and meet our ends and our goals. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If you're going to use this text, you have to use it right. You want to use the law? Okay. Don't forget, there's a whole law. Not just one rule about adulterous women. Don't forget, God said if you break one law, you've broken all the laws. Don't forget, I told you in Matthew chapter 5 that you might have heard it said not to commit adultery, but there's more to that rule. If you're just looking at a woman and you want to commit adultery with her, you've already done it in your heart. See, he rescues the text. The teacher... The teacher rescues the text. One of our friends in Macomb told Leslie she was going to make her a t-shirt. It's going to be black with white letters, and it said, that's not biblical, in quotations. See, my wife is a teacher. That is her call. It is who she is. She can't even turn it off if she wanted to. She's obsessed with this book. 
and she's obsessed with making sure everybody else knows what's in this book. And not just for information's sake, but so that they understand it. Because when you understand it, it necessarily changes how you are, who you are. And Kelly, our friend, just would laugh at Leslie because in every conversation, Leslie would inevitably at some point say, well, that's just not biblical. We'd start talking about some difficulty. They were in the ministry as well. And some difficulty that, that had happened in church or, or in a personal relationship. Well, that's just not biblical. You see, because there's a lot of things that happen in the church that aren't biblical. A lot of things happen among church folks that have nothing to do with what's in this book. And, and the teacher believes wholeheartedly that if we understood what was in this book, it would fix a whole lot of church problems. If we actually understood what was expected of us, maybe we could be what we're expected to be. And the teacher wants to rescue the text. What does the text need rescued from? Sometimes the text needs rescued just from false teaching. Now, there are whole denominations at this this point that have embraced homosexuality with open arms. And I don't just mean to be picking on that one this morning, but it's, it's, it's just thrown in our face constantly. Just like the woman caught in adultery, it's certainly not the only sin that's worth condemning. There are thousands. But it's one that is so pervasive in the church right now. And it's not just... It's not just that it's happening in the church. It's that it's being accepted widely by the church in in blatant disregard to the text. Sometimes there's just flat-out false teaching. Sometimes, sometimes, this one's really hard. Sometimes the teacher has to rescue the text from what we call folk theology. These are just misunderstandings about Scripture or the traditions of the church or the history of the church that have been passed on just generation after generation. Things you were told as a kid in Sunday school because that person's Sunday school teacher told them that and that person's Sunday school teacher told them that and these things just persist. And sometimes you just have to hear those folk theologies and say, well, that's just not biblical. I understand you were taught that, but that's not in the book. I remember a couple years ago I was preaching a sermon series to my church on, on multiculturalism. And I, I had to explain to my church that there is no ban in the Bible on multiracial marriage. It's not there. That is human tradition. Specifically, American tradition. It's not even that old. It's not in this book. It doesn't exist. The Bible doesn't say you can't marry a person who's a different color than you. Never. It's not even implied. Sometimes we just have to rescue the text. It's not because people set out to necessarily do something nefarious. Let's let's cut the church down on its knees. It's not like that. It's just sometimes we just we have bad ideas that get passed down. 
there's this, there's this funny story about a lady who, who makes ham. And every time she makes a ham, she cuts the end of it off. And then she puts it in the pot and she boils it and seasons it and cooks it the way her mom did. And her husband asked her one day, why do you always cut the end off the ham? I don't know. My mom always did. That's just how I learned to do it. And then she's like, huh, I wonder why my mom did that. So she calls her mom. She's like, you know, I don't really know either. Your grandma always did that. And so when I started cooking ham, I just that's just what I did. But I wonder why she does that. So she calls her mom. And she says, Mom, you know, when we cook ham, we always cut the end off. And me and her daughter, my daughter, were wondering, why do we cut the end off? And the grandma just dies laughing. And she's like, well, honey, I cut the end off the ham because I didn't have a big enough pot to fit the ham in. And they just thought that's the way you're supposed to do it. Sometimes bad ideas just get passed on. And the teacher is there to rescue the text from just bad ideas. Bad thinking. Misunderstandings about who God is and what His expectations are. And it's not out of bad intention. It just happens sometimes. Sometimes we have to be rescued from what they call cultural relativism. Cultural relativism is this this thing where we just appropriate the culture of the world into the culture of the church because it's all relative. And all the religious activities and different groups and thoughts and paths of religion are... They're all just, you know, different train tracks going to the same station kind of an idea. And maybe maybe as Christian church folks, we don't take it quite that far, but we do just start to let the world's ideas just creep in. Just little by little. What the world values becomes our value. What's important, what's important in secular society becomes important to us. And sometimes when we when we begin to just make culture, church culture relative to worldly culture, we just have to ignore the text. Or even worse, do violence to it. Sometimes the text has to be read, rescued. And the teacher has that, that passionate thing that just says, I can't, I can't just let this continue when I know that's not biblical. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Excuse me, I said that wrong. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Right? Jesus, it tells us in John 1, verse 18, that the reason Jesus put on flesh and came here was that he might make God fully known to us. His whole purpose in coming here is that we might not just have information about God, but understanding about God. Who he was how he operated, the deep, 
recesses of the heart of God could not be understood by humanity because we're limited to this realm of existence that we comprehend. And so in order for us to really get it, the word, this ultimate truth of God, had to put on this flesh. The teacher, the teacher calls the church not just to understand this text, but to embody it. The teacher's real goal is that the word might become flesh in you. The real heart of the teacher is that if you would just understand what this is meant to be, who you were meant to be, that the truth we find in this book, this beautiful, incredible, life-altering reality we read in this book, it might become who you are. And that the Word might become flesh and you can just walk around in it. There's a quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, even though some people never say he never said it. And he said, at all times and in all ways, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. What if the word became flesh at Nouvelle? What if we lived this? Is there any more powerful purveyor of truth than someone who walks in it? The heart of the teacher is to call us to make this word become flesh so that God might be fully known and understood. So that light might be shined into the darkness. On the last night when Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples around a table that they had sat at every year of their lives. And they went through a ritual celebrating Passover, the most extraordinary event of redemption in human history. God saving his people from slavery in Egypt. And each year at this ritual table, they ate certain food, they drank certain drinks, They read certain scripture. They sang certain songs. They were asked questions. The same questions every year were asked by the Father and answered by the children because there was some truth that needed to be understood around this table. They took three community cups during this meal and each cup represented a different truth. The third and final cup was the cup of covenant. Because after they were led out of Israel or out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, God gave them His law and His covenant with His people. And they would lift this cup 
and, and, and part of the covenant would be read, and they would talk about the covenant of God that he'd made with Israel, this, this everlasting, eternal, I will be your God, you will be my people, here is my law, here is what's necessary, yes, you will sin, here is the provision for grace and redemption and reconciliation, the covenant of God. The Old Testament covenant was about animal sacrifice. Jesus takes that third cup on the night he's betrayed, that cup of the covenant, and he raises it before his disciples, and he says, this is a new covenant. It's a covenant in my blood. You see, that's lost on us. As 21st century Americans... But the first century Jews, when Jesus lifted up the cup of covenant, and he said, this is not the old covenant that you know. This is a new covenant. And this covenant doesn't come through the blood of sheep and goats. It comes through my own blood. Because this is what God has been trying to do from the beginning. The whole sacrificial system, the whole last... 3,000 years of Israelite history was bringing you all to this moment so that through the Old Covenant you could understand this New Covenant. Through the death of the Lamb on Passover you could understand the death of the Lamb of God on on, on Good Friday. This is a New Covenant. Teaching to the end. Do you understand the heart of God? Take this cup. Do you understand the heart of God? Let me tell you what He's doing. Take this bread. It's my body. It's going to be broken for you. Do you understand what He's doing? Do you see it? Yeah, you've read it in the text a hundred times, but I want you to understand it, Jesus tells us. Do you understand what the covenant is about? Take your bread this morning, church. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, This is my body was broken for you. And he said, I want you to take this and I want you to eat it. And I want you to remember what I've done for you from now until I come back. This morning, church, we celebrate open communion. If you are a believer in Jesus, the Son of God, this morning, you are welcome to this table. But I challenge you, search your heart. Because this is not a covenant you step into lightly.
said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it. In the same way, he took the cup. The cup of covenant. And he said, this is my blood. This is my blood which will be spilled out for you. Do you understand? Do you understand? Do you understand? The cost of sin. Do you understand the depths of the love of God? This is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. Jesus, you told your your disciples and the crowd listening that if we didn't eat your flesh and drink your blood, We had no part in you. Lord, this morning, we participate in the Eucharist, the Last Supper, communion. Lord, this morning, we break the bread and we drink the cup because we want to be a part of you. We praise you this morning that you are a good teacher and that you've shined the light of truth into the darkness for each of us and called us into glorious salvation through your blood and body. Lord, I pray this morning, raise up teachers among us. Raise up teachers among us, mighty God, that will be purveyors of truth That will call us to see, to hear, to taste and see that you are good. We love you. We praise you in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we honor you. Have your way among us. Amen. Amen.